The second reading is from Ephesians chapter 4. Paul writes, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with which you were marked with a seal for the day of redemption. Put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander together with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Delighted to see all of you. Um, I wanted to talk this morning a little bit about being loving persons. Um, It's a call that's central to us being followers of Jesus Christ. And yet it's not, as we could all testify, not very easy to do. In fact, I think it's the hardest thing that we are called to do, and it's actually beyond our ability which is why the Spirit is poured out into our hearts, according to Paul in Romans 5, that the love of God has been poured out in our hearts. And the only way we can really fulfill the law of love is by learning to flow with the Holy Spirit, which is a whole other topic to discuss. You remember, every time we come to the table, we come and we admit that we haven't been perfect. And notice the centrality of that prayer, most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. And we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. It's centered around this idea of loving. We admit the fact that our own humanness gets in the way of this divine flow of setting value and preciousness on people. We tend to be thrown more by what they do instead of by who they are, right? It turns out that love and the call to love is both hopeful and scary. Um, It carries both joy and pain. Uh, Just think of your relationships with others, past and present. And there's joy and there's not so much joy. And there's fun And there's trauma, all in the same kind of space. It's the nature of being in relationship with someone else. We can't understand why they aren't right, which is like us. Even the one we have, this relationship we have with God, is fairly complex. We're invited to love and to trust this being who is really beyond being, whom we've never seen and who oft sits in this place of mystery and obscurity and silence. The psalmist goes, as he describes God, from this place of saying, bless the Lord, O my soul, to my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All that back and forth that is just present in every relationship. The challenge is, is that we don't always understand each other, um, which makes it difficult to agree with each other and to see eye to eye, and it messes us up. Psychologist Kersey and Bates nail it on the head when they wrote about this, quote, 
People are different in fundamental ways. They want different things. They have different motives, purpose, purposes, aims, values, needs, drives, impulses, urges. Nothing they write is more fundamental than that. They believe differently. They think, cognize, conceptualize, perceive, understand, comprehend, and cogitate differently. And of course, manners of acting and emoting governed as they are by wants and beliefs follow suit and differ radically among people. They're just writing that we're different here, right? Differences abound. That's not at all difficult to see if one looks. And it is precisely these variations in behavior and attitude that trigger in each of us a common response. Seeing others around us differing from us, we conclude, they write, that these differences in individual behavior are not but temporary manifestations of madness, badness, stupidity, or sickness. In other words, we rather naturally account for the variations of the behavior in others in terms of flaw and affliction. (laughs) Our job, at least for those near us, would seem to be to correct these flaws. Our project then is to make all those near us just like us, end quote. (laughs) I think what they're pointing to is our natural impulse is to not be loving persons, but to be controlling persons. And we end up feeling like being right and fighting for that right is more important than listening and understanding each other. But thinking I am right and fixating on that always results in the escalation of violence, which is the anti-love. First John 3, John writes, don't be like Cain. He belonged to the evil one. He murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because the things Cain had done were wrong, but the things his brother had done were right. In other words, the murder happened over the issue of right and wrong. I think it's important that we all recognize that our perception of right and wrong isn't always accurate. Remember this ancient story, the story of a garden And the text opens that this serpent was the craftiest of all the creatures the Lord God had made. So the serpent came to the woman. Really, he asked? None of the fruit of the garden? God says you mustn't eat any of it? And she said, of course we may eat of it. It's only the fruit of the tree in the center of the garden that we are not to eat. God says we mustn't eat it or even touch it or we will die. That's a lie, the serpent hissed. You will not die. God knows very well that the instant you eat it, you'll become like him for your eyes will be opened and you will be able to distinguish good from evil, right from wrong. The woman was convinced. See, up to this point in this narrative, the human couple's right and wrong were in God. They weren't judges. They were open recognizing the limitations of their perceptions. But now, it's in themselves. This is what is at the heart of what it means to be a fallen person. You think, and I think, we're right. So much so, that we have to be true, and we must fight for the sense of our right. But we have to admit... (laughs) that 
we can only judge right from wrong from a very limited perspective. And that perspective is seldom 100% accurate. And this is where we begin to look beyond ourselves to determine this. I think this is why the Bible commands us repeatedly again and again, do not judge. Who's supposed to be the judge? God. God calls us to love. He says, I will judge. I would much rather say, God, you love them, I'll judge them. I'm so good at it. Now, I'm not suggesting here we have to completely abandon our sense of right. I'm not suggesting that at all. But we have to adjudicate it with more than our own feelings, more than our own perspective. That's why we have the scriptures. That's why we have the tradition of the saints. That's why we have reason. That's why we have prayer. That's why we have community. Matthew 18 talks about if there's a disagreement, how you're supposed to approach it, the right and wrong issue, and it's never just you judging it. It always involves more. It's more safe that way. My only point here is that an undue focus on right and wrong makes being a loving person very difficult, if not impossible. We get violent. We may not kill people like Cain did, but we operate in a murderous spirit. Jesus addresses this, puts a point on it in Matthew 5. You'll remember this. As you know, long ago, God instructed Moses to tell his people, do not murder. Those who murder will be judged and punished. But here is even a harder truth. Anyone who is angry with his brother will be judged for that anger. Anyone who taunts his friend, speaks contemptuously toward him, or calls him loser or fool, or scum, or stupid, will have to answer to the high court. And anyone who calls his brother a fool may find himself in the fires of hell. Not that they go to hell, but hell is released in their lives, burning down precious things. See, the idea here is to not so focus on what we perceive to be right that we write off our brothers, our sisters, our friends, our family. Oh my, is this not a word for our age? So what do we do when we believe that we're right and the other person is wrong? Well, James gives us a clue to some of the steps to take. Listen to what he says. This is James 3. Who among you is wise and understanding? In other words, who among you is right? Let that person demonstrate it, the rightness, by his good way of life by actions done in the humility that grows out of wisdom. See, knowledge puffs up. Love edifies. Wisdom builds. Knowledge sometimes makes you attack. Rightness in your mind sometimes makes you violent. He says, but if you harbor in your hearts bitter jealousy or selfish ambition, don't boast and attack the truth with lies. What he's basically saying is, if you don't handle what you know to be right in a right way, you make the right a lie. You make the truth a lie. This wisdom is not the kind that comes from above. Even if you think it's biblical, even if you think it's absolutely right, it's not a wisdom that comes from above because of the way you're handling it. You're weaponizing it. He said this is worldly, unspiritual, demonic, For where there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there will be disharmony and every foul practice. But the wisdom, the right that is from above is first of all pure, then peace 
filled, peaceful, kind, which means disposed to showing favor, preference, open to reason, full of mercy. You know, mercy is so funny because it's so neutral gray. Truth is so black and white. When you start being full of mercy, people go, you're compromising the truth. See? But it's full of mercy and good fruits without partiality, without hypocrisy. And the peacemakers who sow seeds in peace, they're the ones that raise a harvest of right. Right only wins when the peacemakers do it. You remember how, who was it? James that said, the wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. In other words, your anger over what's right does not make right right. It doesn't make it win. I'm preaching hard because I'm preaching to Edwin. (laughs) This is the hardest place for, I think, for all of us. Thinking through when we're right, how we handle it. James is claiming that it's not just the truth you know that's critical, but it's how you communicate it, the spirit of it that makes it either true or a lie, even if it is the truth. This is the danger of the age we live in, like I just said. We should be against a bunch of stuff. It's not right, all kinds of horrors around us, from racism to sexism to ageism to ableism to the misuse of power to all forms of abuse. I mean, there's all kinds of trouble all around us, but as believers... We must handle these injustices with grace. We must move in love, which means we're called to be prophets, to speak to things, not crusaders. Prophets, they stand for things because God is for things, but prophets are always for people, lifting people, trying to ensure no one gets hurt. In fact, as they do that, sometimes it's the prophet that gets persecuted. And the prophet that gets killed. But crusaders, on the other hand, focus so much on rights that they perceive should be respected. So much so that they're actually willing to fight for, kill off, quash, write off who they perceive as offenders of the right. Whether it be their friends, family members, leaders, people they work with. But the church got in deep kimchi for engaging in the crusades during what's called the dark ages. Let's not go there again. Let's not be crusaders. Let's be prophets. Again, this doesn't mean that you shouldn't advocate for the right. We all should. It just means that we should be careful in how we do it, that we make sure we do it well, but even when we do it well, <laughs> here's another bit of bad news. Even when we do it well, sometimes things don't turn out well. This takes us right into our Old Testament story that Father Chris read for us. This is the story of David and Absalom. David is king, Absalom is his son, his son. And his son is attacking the king. And the story opens with David preparing for battle. He's been forced into it. He doesn't want it. But it's the battle that he has to engage with, with his son. And at some point, Adam, or Absalom had kicked out his father David and was trying to take over the throne. And 
Absalom had made his father David a fugitive, and he's running for his life. And David discovers that Absalom had been plotting this for years, and there was no way to address it except in a way that seemed harsh and violent. And the author of the story wants us to see a pattern in David. Remember, David is a person who's after God's heart. And if you look at David's life, you've seen patterns of compassion. You remember when the king Saul was hunting David, trying to kill David, David was compassionate with him, generous with him, weeps his demise. Now here Absalom is hunting David. David again is compassionate with Absalom. And as the battle raged, David's army ends up being victorious. But in the process, you remember, he's the one. They had come, David had come and told all of the the people that were fighting. They said, he told them, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. I mean, even though he's the one that's created this war, he even said, I know we have to go to war, but deal gently with him. Why? Because sometimes when you're trying to be loving and you're trying to do what's right, the crusaders come with you. And they're not interested in dealing with it nicely. And actually the way the story works out is Absalom gets stuck in a tree and could have easily been brought to David and mercy been shown him. But he was murdered tragically and brutally. Why? Because someone thought it was just right to stop this. The battle rages, David's army is victorious, but Absalom is killed, and David is given the good news of the win. His kingdom will reign and endure, which is also bad news. Absalom's mutiny has been put down, but Absalom, David's son, is dead. Eugene Peterson says of the reader's experience when we encounter this story, he writes about this story, quote, we experience in some measure the ambiguities of love and justice. The death of Absalom serves the cause of justice triumphantly. The death of Absalom exposes the pain of unrequited love tragically. Though David's throne is saved, David's heart is broken. Even when right wins in the economy of God, sometimes it's tragic. That's why God's not just for right. God's for peace. Where right eventually wins, but even when it wins sometimes, it's tragic. Our Old Testament reading captures the complexity of what it means to be a loving person. We often experience both wins and losses at the same time in our relationships. Paul weighs in on the sketchiness of being right. Uh, In Romans 12, he writes, If people mistreat you or malign you, bless them. Always speak blessings, not curses. If we have cause to celebrate, join in the celebration. And if others are weeping, join in that as well. Always try to work with people. Work toward unity and live in harmony with one another. Avoid, what is that? Is that just the sound? It's not going to blow, right? I mean, it's just trying to... Avoid, avoid thinking. So avoid thinking that you are better than others or wiser than the rest. Oh my gosh, that's exactly how you think when you think you're right. Instead, embrace common people. That was people that you think don't quite get it. 
an ordinary task. Do not retaliate with evil. Regardless of the evil brought against you, try to do. In other words, you don't have complete control here. But try to do what is good and right and honorable and is as agreed upon by all people. What's the best way forward with each other, not what you just perceive? If it is within your power, make peace with all people. He's saying that when you're a loving person, making peace with people isn't always possible. Sometimes there's breaking down. But it should always grieve you. You should always hate that, not rejoice that you are right. One of the greatest sins in my life, and there have been many, I've been a pretty professional and proficient sinner. But one of the greatest ones I remember having was the night that in the 90s when America attacked um, the Gulf and that war. And we had felt attacked and wanted to protect and we were right and we started dropping bombs everywhere. It lit up the sky and all kinds of people, innocents were killed and something in me was going, yes, we're right. And it dawned on me later that I was more excited about being right than I was grieving about loss and the fact that something like that was even done. Being a loving person doesn't mean you always win. And being loving is more about being faithful to God than it is about winning. Listen to the description of love. We're almost done what it actually looks like. And notice how little is said about feelings, if anything. You know this. This is taught by Paul right in the middle of a Eucharistic service. First Corinthians 13, First Corinthians 11, the service begins. The end of the service, it talks about the spirit moving. It's all within the context of the kinds of things we do here, the Eucharist. And here's what he says. Love endures long. It isn't just like, it's not just a fuse that just, how dare you. It endures long, it is patient. You know what patient means? You can suffer quite a while. Can we? Can you? It is kind. Again, it's the disposition of showing favor. That's what kindness is. You're always wanting to show favor. Not correct. Love is never envious. It never boils over with jealousy. It is not boastful. It is not vainglorious. It doesn't display itself haughtily. It is not conceited and arrogant and inflated with pride. It's not rude, unmannerly. It does not act unbecomingly. Gosh, I mean, just reading this much keeps me from being on Facebook at all. <laughs> For it, is, it doesn't insist on its love, God's love in us, does not insist on its own rights or its own way. For it is not self-seeking, it's not touchy or fretful or resentful. It takes no account of an evil done to it. <laughs> Man, I don't know what's inside me. It's like I have an elephant's memory about things done to me. <laughs> I mean, I can so easily give you a detailed account. But love erases the accounts, tears up accounts. 
doesn't pay attention to a suffered wrong. It does not rejoice in injustice and unrighteousness. It does rejoice when right and truth prevails. So it's not a give up of right and truth. It's just not willing to kill over it. Love bears up under anything and everything that comes. It's ever ready to believe the best of the person that you don't understand or that you might disagree with. Its hopes are fadeless under all circumstances and it endures everything without weakening. Love never fails. Notice it doesn't say love always wins. Sometimes when you're loving, you heal relationships. Sometimes when you're loving, you bring marriages together that seem to be destined for destruction. Sometimes when you're loving, you keep your work connections and you restore broken connections. Other times when you're loving, you don't restore the broken friendship and there's a loss of a job and the divorce happens. Paul just said, if it's within your power, be at peace with all people, but it's not always within your power. But our calling To love always remains irrespective of the outcomes. We're to love with a love that never fails, which means it never gives up loving. Yeah. Finally, we finish with what Paul wrote in our lectionary text for this morning, Ephesians 4. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Think of that. You can grieve the Holy Spirit. Grieve the Holy Spirit. How? He says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit with which you were marked with the seal of the day of redemption. How do you grieve the Holy Spirit? If you don't put away bitterness, wrath, anger, and wrangling, slander, and malice. You grieve the Holy Spirit when you're not kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving, you know what forgiveness means? It's the Greek word aphaimi. It means to send away offense. Even if people don't know they've even if they don't understand, even if they don't own it, you send it away. It's the cross, right? That's where Jesus said, Father, they don't know what they do. You know, forgive them. They don't know what they do. I, my prayers in, when I get in conflicts is usually, Father, I know they don't know what they do, but please judge them. Hold them to it. They're idiots. They don't know what they do. They need to know what they do. I mean, that's my natural reaction. But that grieves the spirit. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God. Talk about a message that's beyond any of us. As beloved children and live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Loving like this makes you a sacrifice, not a sacrificer. A priest, a prophet, not a crusader and a sword bearer. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church.